There are very few black female filmmakers that have been acknowledged by mainstream media and Hollywood. By no means does it mean that the work of such artists is not good enough. Casey Lemons, Ava DuVernay, Julie Dash, and Eugène Palsy are but a few that have had the opportunity to break through. Their work is exquisite, only surpassed by their work ethic. It is from this lineage and tutelage that Laurie Webster emerges. Laurie grew up in a small town in North Carolina. She was fascinated with stories, and more importantly, storytelling, as far back as her childhood years. That fascination led her to shoot, direct, and edit her first film by her teens. She admits that the film was her 16-year-old interpretation of John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, set in her beloved North Carolina. Laurie's experimental film solidified her love for the art form and ushered her thoughts in one direction. When others were wondering what their major would be in college, Laurie knew that she was destined for the world of media. She was convinced that being a storyteller was her calling. A series of life events, including pageants, she'll tell you more about that later, and travel to several countries, plus 18-hour days at several networks, has produced, in my estimation, one of the next great African-American filmmakers. Laurie's eye is among the best, her imagination limitless, her ability to compose and deliver stories exceptional. From her work in documentary to narrative tales, Laurie Webster is a name that you should remember. Though I have attempted to provide a brief synopsis of Laurie the filmmaker, she is somewhat of a renaissance woman. In her own words, this is the story, thus far, of Laurie Webster. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. is a filmmaker with a film coming to a screen near you pretty soon. Laurie Webster, welcome to Planet 30. Thank you for having me, Crispin. Thank you for being here. Been a long time. <laughs> it's been a long time and we go so far back, man. So, so far back, film school days. Ooh, yeah, Washington, D.C., Howard University. <laughs> yup, yup, yup. You are from North Kakalaka, as they say. North Carolina, for those that don't know. Tell me about growing up in North Carolina. Oh, man. So I first moved to North Carolina right before I turned five. Um, I actually was born in um, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Um, and in North Carolina, it was kind of a culture shock when I first got there because I was like used to city life. And then all of a sudden, things kind of came to a screeching halt in a small town called Kinston. Um, but funny enough, Kinston is very much what made me who, the person that I am today. Um, it was a tiny but mighty town. We were right in the road where like hurricanes kind of plowed through, like economic hardships would hit hard. Um, and we have a slogan there um, called Kinston Tough, and it holds its weight. Um, you know, we aren't that like traditional town where it's like backwards, like how you see like on the movies and everything. It's like that town is full of people with heart and, you know, people that'll tell you the truth and shame the devil. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, growing up there was, you know, very much an adventure. Like it made it, it helped in terms of just my imagination and just like letting me know that, you know, while the space there was small and, you know, the community was very tight knit, that there was a world outside of there that I was very eager um, and got a lot of life learnings there in Kinston um, to prepare me for um, once I finally branched out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, what were you into as a kid? Like what, what fascinated you? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I was kind of a tomboy when I was younger, so I was like the one that loved to be outside, playing in the dirt, riding on my bike, scraping up my knees. I didn't like the scraping the knee part, but, you know, I just loved to, like, um, you know, just be outside playing as much as I could. And then um, when I was, you know, sometimes inside, you know, I was I grew up in the 90s, so, like, 
Super Nintendo era, you know, your Saturday morning cartoons, TGIF, all of that stuff, um, you know, very much shaped my, you know, my downtime when I wasn't like in school and stuff like that. But overall, I think the biggest thing that drew me was just like adventure because I was very inquisitive. So like if I was outside, it was digging and probing, trying to find coins or just find random things or like go as far as I could go um, before my mom would like yell down the street to be like, you need to come home. I can't see where you're at, that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, like just anything that kind of could feed the brain. Like I know sometimes even like um, this is going to make me sound so nerdy, but like this was before the days of the Internet. Um, I would actually like sit sometimes when I was bored of whatever was on TV and just like thumb through the encyclopedia. And if I saw a picture that was interesting, I would read up on that or like try to learn a new word, like look up like the hardest word I would see at the like uh, upper right corner of the dictionary and just try to like, you know, just fill my mind with whatever I could, um, you know, when I was not able to continue grilling my older cousins with questions because I was driving them nuts. So, yeah. <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lori, what were your first memories of visual art? And follow up to that, does anything stand out in your mind from television or film in your formative uh, years? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, as far as... Um, visual art goes I guess specific to filmmaking um there were a good number of things so like I had mentioned before I came up in the 90s and um even the late 80s too like I, I remember you know some of my earlier years but that was a renaissance era for black content so like black movies were booming black mm-hmm. television was booming so you had like Spike Lee I think do the right thing like that was in the late 80s and then you know, Boys in the Hood was definitely a film that was very, very um, formative for me, like really more so on the latter end when I was about to graduate from high school, even though it came out when I was much younger. Um, and then you also had like the classics like The Cosby Show, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, um, Living Single, all of that, like all of those things shaped me world. in. A different world, absolutely. Actually, a different world is the reason why I went to college. Um, I didn't end up going to an HBCU for undergrad. Um but it just that that seeing that college culture like just made me just really like desire to be up in that type of space um and so yeah like I I feel like all of those things like just seeing such a broad representation of um black culture and black life in a way that felt very familiar to me um you know definitely helped in terms of just my self-esteem and it, it definitely reinforced like you know how I saw myself and our people um you know in tandem with how I was being raised in the home. And so um, in terms of like what ended up actually making me want to become a filmmaker, um, I even seeing that much representation actually still felt like something was missing. Like, you know, the South obviously um, has its its dark past as well as like a very strong uh, reputation of racism but the south that i knew even though we had those issues there wasn't quite the crosses burning on the lawn type of experience and so i used to sometimes scratch my head when i'd be watching certain content especially when it was set in the south and be like "Mm, like i feel like my story's missing here like you know it's it's not as horrible here as people want to think you know, and so I remember um, this quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. And it kind of mm-hmm. stopped me from getting so much in the mode of like complaining about what wasn't and more fascinated about the possibility of what could be at my hands. And so um, what kind of like started out with just pure boredom, um, <laughs> like so in, in just for context, um, in the South during the summertime, it's not uncommon for us uh, like a flash storm to pop up like because it's so hot so like a lot of times when it would be like thundering and a lightning in the afternoon like when my auntie uh would be babysitting she was kind of old school so she would make us cut off all the lights and cut off all the anything that was electric including including the tv and she'd be like let the lord do his work like that thundering was kind of being treated like as if god was talking and so when he had things to say, it was a little boring for me as a kid. Like, I couldn't go outside to play. I couldn't watch TV. And then I'd be thinking about, you know, something that I saw and just feeling like something was missing. So all of that ended up birthing, like, some of my earliest writings because I figured I got, in a, got a lot of imagination. 
And let me try to see if I can come up with a story that feels very true to the world that I live in while I'm bored. Um, and so that started out as a hobby. Um, and I was very much into music and arts and all of that stuff already. And then by the time I got to um, my senior year in high school, they made us do a senior project where, you know, you could pick what it was. Um, but it was it was a requirement to graduate. And so I ended up deciding to take one of the short stories that I had written back in middle school and adapt it into um, a script that could be filmed. And it was all inspired by Boys in the Hood um, and just how it made me feel, even though I didn't grow up in South Central Los Angeles, just how authentic it felt. And so I kind of made my own rendition of a story that was set in North Carolina um, and just the, the bootlegging that I did to make that happen, like recording on a home video camera, um, editing using two VCRs. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> like <laughs> I had no clue what I was doing, but I ended up with some transitions, some sound effects. Like I, I pulled it off um, for the sake of that project. But in the span of all of that, it woke something up in me. And I realized then like, not only can I like, be creative, use my writing, I can also incorporate music. Like it was a once it was like a one stop shop to be able to incorporate all of the arts plus, you know, kinda answer that original question that I had as a kid where I felt like my story was missing. Um and so that was the beginnings of my filmmaking career. So would you say that that was your Eureka moment, you know, when you when you're splicing your tapes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. Um I think what really was the eureka moment in all of it is that even though all of it was um a great challenge and i didn't have all the answers i felt very um challenged in the right way to just continue down the rabbit hole to see how far i could make it go um and that feeling has actually never left even as i've like gone on to subsequent projects you know i have a lot more training now and more experience and everything but that same like drive and passion that would like make me go like hours on end um you know to make it happen that that was what woke up in me at that time when i did that project mm-hmm. in high school so laurie was i made to understand that you were a pageant girl in high school tell me what oh, was that Lord. what was <laughs> what was that experience like and, and how did it mold or change or shape you if in any way uh yeah so in high school i did a few pageants um i did one with um delta sigma theta then there was another um like junior miss pageant and there's one other that i'm forgetting but yeah it it definitely was a good experience um each one were very different but all of it was for scholarship money so i was like on that hunt trying to figure out how i was going to pay for college and those opportunities presented themselves and there was a lot of training and just a lot of uh, fundraising, just a lot of work that had to go into it. But I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Um, probably like one of the best things that came from it was just like getting that self-confidence. Um, I'm, I'm kind of petite and sometimes on the quiet spirited side, I won't say quiet side, quiet spirited side. But there's something about like when you have to stand in front of an audience and perform or, you know, to be on or be put on the spot that just it, it clicks in you throughout life um so that's the the things that I learned as far as like interviewing or just like having like poise and presence um in front of people um when they're scrutinizing you and sometimes not always happy to see you um it's definitely something that like I can stand tall in to this day Laurie I, I also understand that you were a drum major in high school in your high school marching band I was. I was probably one of the shortest people in the band in a year when there was someone else in the band that was like six foot six. And yep, (laughs) I was that person. Um, And again, like just kind of speaking to like being that quiet force, like I always found myself being put in leadership roles, even though I never was the loudest person in the room. Um, And that experience, probably even first before the... um, the beauty pageant stuff was the thing that definitely helped me to be a leader and a director um, later later on in life. um, Because when you have to lead a group of peers and especially in high school, high school peers are not like, they're not with the okie doke. And if they don't like you, they're not going (laughs) to cooperate with you. So I I never could raise my voice because I wasn't loud. And plus you can't be yelling at your classmates, but also like, who's he talking to? 
Yeah, exactly. Who are you talking to? So I, I knew better than that, but it was a it was something where like gaining and or not even gaining, but just maintaining the respect of my peers and also like inspiring them enough to want to listen and follow my leadership. It 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 was a priceless experience and it definitely wasn't an easy one, but we definitely had a very like very successful year um when I was when I was drum major and um yeah, and then there was there were other people that came years after me that, you know, definitely were just as small, if not even smaller than I was. And, you know, they, they would tell me like, hey, you know, you inspired me to go for it, too. I, I realized that I didn't have to count myself out. So, yeah, it was it was a great experience. And um, again, like sometimes those early experiences that you have in life that can have such a heavy impact on the person that you are today. Mm-hmm. So, Laurie, tell me about undergrad, your experience at Chapel Hill. And then on to uh, grad school. Well, you know, tell us about your collegiate experience. Okay, so um, I started at um, UNC Chapel Hill for um, my undergraduate study. And there I majored in um, media studies and production, which was part of the communications department. And then I also picked up a second major in African-American studies, which was actually pretty important. Because when I um, came into UNC, like I, I had a love for like, you know, culture, history, and those types of things. But up to that point, I mainly had studied everybody else's history but my own. And so I thought to myself, like, how how can I be an informed storyteller or just a well-rounded human being if I don't even know who I am? And so um, that's where the second major came from. And, you know, in a odd way, it ended up being the thing that weighed out more than even the media studies and production side of my um, of my learning just because of the you know, path that I ended up taking in terms of my um, career as a um, filmmaker. But anyway, yeah, UNC was awesome. I bleed Tar Heel blue. I was raised as a Tar Heel. And so it was only right that I went there for undergrad. Um, So it was an excellent mix of like, you know, good education, but also like just a great college experience all around because of the basketball program, um, the black student movement. Um, Actually, while I was there, too, I was also active with um, this um, group called EROT, um, and they were the Ebony Readers Onyx Theater, and every um, semester we would put on a play, um, and so we would, you know, come up with a concept, write it, and all of that stuff, and so um, between that and student television, like, I was pretty active at Carolina and had a really great experience, and then from there, um, ended up going to Howard University, where I met you, yeah. um, <laughs> and had actually had a really good experience there too. I didn't end up graduating from Howard. I did a semester there. Um, but I would say probably one of the most profound lessons that I learned as a filmmaker came from one of my most painful and embarrassing moments that happened there. Um, and that was with Holly Garima, the legend. Um, he, I remember he it well. Oh, yeah. He went around the classroom asking everybody why they want to be a filmmaker. So here I am, young Angela Davis and, you know, trying to be all extra woke and stuff, talking about why I want to tell black stories and all of that. And then he goes and says, well, who died and nominated you the spokesman of all black people? And I was like, wait, what? Like, (laughs) I didn't have an answer. He had like snatched a rug from under me. And I was so angry with him at the time, as were like a lot of other people. But as I got older and like really got a chance to reflect on that, um, I'm kind of glad that something like that happened in a safe space, but also like it really helped me to like get really firmly grounded, grounded and rooted in why I wanted to tell the stories that I was telling, um, but also to make sure that I'm doing justice to each and every single story as opposed to just having like that broad conceptual view that sometimes we can um, burden our stories with having as black filmmakers. So, um, yeah. So fast forward, ended up going to um, USC to um, get my graduate study in and got my MFA from there. Um, I focused on the directing track and um, also did a lot of documentary work while there. And um, all of that education has had a big has had a big hand in the filmmaker that I am today. Why USC? I mean, after Howard, you know, you had the pick of the litter. You could have gone to Tisch at NYU. You could have done UCLA. Why USC? Um, so a couple of things. I was actually already living in Los Angeles by that point. Um, so after I left Howard, I actually ended up moving to L.A. and working in television production um, right up through the writer strike. And then there was a bit of an interruption there. And I started to do a bit of soul searching and just realized, like, hey, like 
I have a lot of work experience. I have a lot of like life experience, but I want to pick up the technical experience. And so USC kind of functions in a lot of different ways, um, as do a, a number of the other film schools. But for me, USC was like the pinnacle of film school. And I knew that they focused a lot on the technical stuff, but they also did a lot to mimic what the traditional mainstream industry was. Um, and so I wanted to be able to take time uninterrupted to be able to create, but create up against that current um, of what I knew I would meet out in the mainstream image industry. And then on the other part of it is the connections. Like to this day, I still work with my cohorts um, that I met in that program. And um, that network is second to none. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's interesting that you should say everything that you just said. Because my follow-up question was, and this has been an argument, both on the internet and social media, I've seen YouTube videos, is film school worth it in 2020? That is a good question. I actually would take the in 2020 off um, to say, is film school worth it? That that's a, I think that's a very personal question. Um, I think it really all boils down to what you're looking for. So... Even if you ask like some of my cohorts, you get a mixed response in terms of like what their experience was at USC, especially um, among people of color, black people specifically. Um, For me, it was worth it because of what I was looking for. What I was looking for was to be able to um, have this have this concentrated skill and expertise in my craft. So I didn't feel like I had to bluff when I walked in the room to say I knew what I was doing. Um, Can you get that outside of film school? Absolutely. But the situation that I found myself in personally is that my work demands, my nine to five work demands were always so steep that I was always having to give what was left of my energy to my craft. Whereas with film school, because of crappy school loans and all that stuff, it at least made enough space for me to be able to just focus full on to be a filmmaker without worrying about where my next meal was coming from. Um, So for me, it was worth it. For other people, though, like, I would definitely caution them about those student loans because they are no joke. I, without having gone to grad school, would be debt-free. With grad school, I got a lightweight bit of a mortgage on my on my head, but I know that, you know, the return on the investment is already coming. Um, so, yeah, I, I would just say the long short of it is it's a really personal decision. I would never, like, urge or coerce a person to go to film school to feel like they have to be... Uh, you know, have these credentials that make themselves legit because this is the one industry where like your school credentials don't matter. And in fact, in some spaces, depending on where you are, it can almost be a, um, yeah, it can almost be a, something against you because, you know, sometimes people think that you come into the space with an elitist point of view. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's personal um, for me. It was worth it. But, yeah, I say if you're worried about the debt or if you have any doubts about whether or not you should be in film school, then you shouldn't be in film school. Mouthful. (laughs) So, Laura, you you mentioned that you had uh, already been in L.A. What are some of the uh, productions that you worked on even before USC? Um, So mostly in the television space for me, um, I worked on uh, one of the earliest productions I worked on was this show on ABC called Super Nanny. Super Nanny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know that's really dating myself now, but um, yeah, I started out there, um, and then eventually I worked on um, the Disney Channel. Um, there was a spinoff of the show called That's So Raven that I worked on. That show was called Corey in the House. I remember um, that. And then, yeah, yeah, and then they had like a reboot of um, Knight Rider that was on for like a split second. I did that with NBC, and then there were a couple countdown shows that I did with BET. There was some more reality content with TV One. I kind of bounced back and forth through a lot of the different networks, and that's pretty standard for like um, life as a freelancer. Um, and I just kind of moved my way up the chain in the uh, in the production realm. So I was. I, if I had a continued on, I would have been on track to become a UPM or line producer. Um, but I actually made a very distinct decision to not continue on that path because that wasn't the path for me. Um, and so that's where grad school came in because I was like, I really want to get more into directing and writing. But, you know, at this rate, when I'm working like 12, 14, sometimes 16 hour days, I'm never going to have time. So, um, and I made that decision and haven't looked back since. Now, Laurie, tell us about, you mentioned that you were very intentional in the way you structured your career. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so um, one of the things that's really important to like point out as a because I was a freelancer is there's a pretty strong current in our industry. And so, you know, when you're a freelancer, the idea is that you want to get on to the, you know, the best raft or the best vehicle to kind of carry you through that current so that you can one, stay working because, you know, the bills keep coming, but also two, that you, you know, hope to be able to advance in your career. Um, but at times that current can get really strong. So I found myself in a situation early on where the work was steady, even with the writer strike that happened, um, there was a little bit of an interruption, but I think I probably out of my whole freelance career, maybe was out of work for the most amount of time was probably like two months, two and a half months. Um, but all that to say is like, I, I was mostly taking what was coming to me, um, and trying to network to make sure I kept working. But at the end of the day, like I wasn't, I was only able to create content in the time that I had left. And I didn't like that trend of always giving what was most important to me the last bit of my energy, but giving all my best energy to something else that I wasn't necessarily that excited or passionate about, passionate about. And then the, the probably the straw that broke the camel's back in addition to just like the current being so strong over my time was looking at people that were on the path further along from where I was and seeing how miserable they were. Like they had these amazing careers. They had a lot of money, but they weren't joyous. They were feeling unfulfilled because they weren't able to go into their own creative pursuits. And then some people Mm -hmm. just flat out had let it go. And I just wasn't going to let mine go. So I made a decision you know, grad school for me was not an out. It was a very deliberate decision to say, I'm going to now take the time to invest in myself. I've leased my time everywhere else, and now the time belongs back to me. Um, and so once I came out of graduate school, it wasn't a, a immediate shot to success, but I came out with the mindset of playing the long game. Um, and so when I first got out of grad school, you know, I actually ended up going, um, taking a time out to North Carolina to deal with some family things. And then by the time I got back into the mix in L.A., um, I was working corporate. So you think, well, wait, you just said you're going to be intentional and now you're back in corporate. Um, but it was, you know, still a part of that, um, you know, just trying to find that delicate balance. And so I was making really good money working um, for big tech companies, creating content. Um, and then finally, I just put my foot down. And this actually happened um, at the end of 2018, where I said, there's not a paycheck big enough for me to spend my life doing something that doesn't bring me joy as a creator. Mm-hmm. Joy doesn't necessarily mean easy. Joy just means fulfillment. And I knew that my purpose um, was something bigger than being in a space where I was that confined, having to go by someone else's rules. And so I actually made the decision at that time to go fully independent. And that (laughs) the word independent in this industry can be very loaded. I'm an independent where I actually do like, you know, have contracts and, um, you know, and, and bring in business and have money and things like that. But it wasn't an overnight thing. And it was definitely very scary to go from like a steady stable situation into like what felt like the wild west but i have have absolutely no regrets for doing it um and so far it's been um growth even in the season of covid so if that's something that could encourage anyone else i would just say go for it but just go for it with the mindset of playing the long game because nothing is quick nothing is easy but if it's worth it it'll come full circle i wonder when your book's coming out no book, but you know, I definitely got stories to tell. You know, <laughs> no biggie smalls. <laughs> I got right. a story to tell. Now, Laurie, of all the production jobs you had, um, which was your favorite and why? Um, so, of my production jobs when I was working in television, I would probably say um, working for Disney Channel um, for a number of reasons, and that was because. Um, it's something about just working around kids like kids bring joy um and so it seemed to have attracted a crew where they just enjoyed what they were doing like i've been on set sometimes where it's just like everybody's screw face or you know there's backstabbing all kinds of negative stuff going on but when i worked on that (laughs) yeah when i worked on that particular production um 
people we just laugh like and you know the content was fun and silly and you know we also had a work-life balance as well like um just because of child labor laws and so it's like the crew also benefited from the fact that the kids couldn't work past a certain time right. so, <laughs> so we you know we, we had balance you know i remember being able to still go to the gym at that time versus like other productions where you just you didn't even know what day it was after a while so yeah that was probably one of my favorites long, um, long hours bad food <laughs> exactly yeah you can't you can't mess around with the food so um yeah so that I, I think that in that time or in that chapter of my career that was probably my favorite um but now as an independent like I find myself working on a lot of like documentary content and that's a, that's actually a realm that I never saw myself being in per se I would never had anything against it but I've actually really loved um there's there's something special about working with non-actors and still being able to shape and um, bring out a narrative mm-hmm. um, that I really enjoy. Um, so that's that's been a lot of my work right now. But I still have my own like scripted projects in development too. And that happens to be my next question. Tell us about some of your personal projects. So my latest project, um, or one of my latest projects, is a docu-series um, that is focused on social activism and the history um, that the black church has had in the movement um, for the black struggle for freedom in America. Um, and so that project is actually executive produced by Warren Campbell as well as um, Mike, Michael McBride. Um, and that one is very timely considering all of the like political upheaval that we have going on right now, but we didn't plan it that way. It just started with us having a story that we wanted to tell um and you know now it's a five-part docuseries we just aired the pilot recently um and we're still plugging along to get through the other um four episodes um and hopefully get distribution on that soon um to one of the major platforms so a big audience can enjoy that um another project that i actually just got off of um is for a branded um a branded short documentary that was focusing on a um, black female hiker. There are black female hikers, just in case people didn't know. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, but um, it was a really great experience. It involved a 10 mile hike to like 12,300 feet, which I never thought I would see something like that on my feet in this lifetime. But I made it up there and, um, you know, have it's, it's awakened something in me. So I guess I can now call myself a black female hiker, too. Um, and I've got a number of other projects in the works as well. Um, so, but those are like my two latest ones. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us some some of your past projects that you um, you had because you you had a, a project that aired at Con. Oh yeah, actually, that was my um, my thesis project from USC. So. Um, there's a neighborhood in Los Angeles called Lamert Park, and that neighborhood is very special for me because when I moved to L.A., like it was a huge culture shock being on the West Coast in a different world. But that particular neighborhood was the one that made me feel like I was at home and I still call it home to this day. Um, and so I actually did a documentary um, that was kind of focused on some of the um, gentrification that was threatening the the culture and the history of the area as a predominantly black community and a hub for black arts in LA. Um, And thankfully that particular documentary was, um, had the honor of being screened um, at at the film festival. So um, that was a really great experience to have like right on the hills of graduating from school. Um, and not only that, but also to just be in the presence of so many like world renowned um, filmmakers and to really just, you know, watch as many films and be inspired um, in such an environment as that. Um, yeah. Nice. Now, Lamert Park, yes, wonderful uh, spot in L.A. What should people expect when moving to L.A. as a transplant? You'll probably be able to help out people with this answer because the tons of people that are actors and filmmakers and musicians, just creatives in general that want to move to L.A. What are some of the things to, that they should expect or do or not do? Oh, man, there's a long list of things. I would say, well, one of the things that I think would just help at a broad level for anybody that's looking to relocate to L.A. is don't believe the hype. And I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm actually saying that to be realistic. L.A. is a city just like anywhere else. So, you know, you definitely want to have some coins saved up before you get here. 
but you also want to be vigilant while you're here because, you know, we're in a town of, you know, glitz and glamour and all of that stuff. But a lot of times you can get people that talk that talk, um, but they're full of hot air. And so um, you can kind of find yourself caught up with a lot of unsavory people if you don't, um, you know, just kind of have a good head about you and stay grounded. Um, and then I think another thing um, that really helped me to last the long haul was finding your tribe. Um, mm. <clears throat> just to that same point, you know, because there's a lot of people that try to rub shoulders with the big wigs or try to make themselves seem like they're more important than someone else. Like if you can weed your way past those kind of people very quickly and find the people that are just down to earth that you honestly vibe with. You know, being around like-minded people can go a long way in terms of your career trajectory. But as far as your, um, you know, your just your whole psyche as well. Like, you don't want people that are dragging you down and draining you. And when you find yourself among other fellow creatives that are trying to build, that could be your crew too. You know, if you're an actor, and you're like, oh, I don't know a director, or I don't have anybody that writes. If you and you don't want to be the person to be all things. Find you know find your tribe and you 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 will find in your own community that these things become available to you and that you end up looking up five six years later and you're like whoa it's been that long like because you've made yourself right at home. Mm-hmm. Now, Laurie, describe your style as a filmmaker. Oh, that's a good one. Um, so as a filmmaker, okay, so the stories that I tend to gravitate to like hands down are stories that represent some aspect of the black experience. Doesn't necessarily have to be the black American experience, but you're going to see some black people in my movie. That's just what it is. That's the stories I want to tell. Um, I love telling stories about, um, powerful black women. I didn't say the word strong because I meant to not say strong because that can sometimes be a negative too. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I'm very drawn to like, Womanist stories, um, stories that reflected my mom or women that I knew growing up. Um, but in terms of like style, like magical realism will like something surreal will show up in my work. Like even with the most like sterile content, if I can find a way to like add some sort of like surreal or magical component to it, like sign me up. What is your favorite part of the filmmaking process though? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I would probably say outside of being on set, like, you know, being on set makes me feel alive. But I would ironically say the research process. And I think that goes back to that inquisitive kid in me. Interesting. I love learning inf- new information and I love to, like, make sure that I have a, like, really balanced perspective on something before I dive into it. And so I really, really love the research process because the cool thing about film is it takes you on a journey like every story you take on is going to take you into a new realm and so that research process for me is gold that's so that's a that that is such an interesting answer most people say oh the directing or you know the the producing or the writing the, the <laughs> re- she said the research the research yeah before deep. you even get there <laughs> we had a guy in our film class they used to say that's powerful <laughs> powerful powerful <laughs> Now, now Laurie, speak a little bit about the black female voice in film and why that is important. Why the black female voice? Uh, I would say especially at a time like now, but I think it's always been important. But why is that important um, in in your opinion? So I would actually take off in film and just say the black female voice is important specifically in America because in so many cases and in so many realms we've been right and it's not about Mm. just right or wrong it really just boils down to like being real like we have an intersectional experience and perspective in this country you know as black people you know we've experienced oppression based on our race as women we've experienced oppression based on our gender but The oppression is not the thing that defines us. It's the fact that we live and look through a lens that's honest and that's real because those oppressions have been pressed on us in a way where like we can't we can't puff things up. We can't get around things. So as a filmmaker, I feel like 
black the black female voice is so urgently important because we can speak to that intersection but at the same time we have never gotten an ounce in our lived experience to ever not be real with ourselves now we can make a choice to not be real but reality has always been facing us head on um and so i think like when it comes to um cinematic storytelling that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to like be rooted in like hardcore, hard hitting stories all the time. But I think that that perspective is one that is so full of possibilities. There's so many hidden gem stories that rest in that space. And from our perspective, even if the story is not necessarily about a black woman, we, we, we're just wired to see the world in a way that's distinctly unique um, from anybody else. It's not better than anybody else, but I think that just based on our positioning of having been ignored and having been denied in so many ways, like it's just a it's a gold mine of opportunity in terms of just having a unique and fresh voice and perspective when it comes to um, cinematic storytelling. You have stated that you like to encourage diverse perspectives in your art. Why do you think the mainstream media, if I, if you can say? Why do you think mainstream is still afraid to embrace um, diverse voices? Because we've had, if it's a if it's a matter of money, at the box office, we've had Crazy Rich Asians proven itself. Tyler Perry, do you need to go any further into proof that black film can make money? <laughs> you know that part. <laughs> what is it that's still hindering the mainstream from taking a chance? on the next Indian American uh, American film or Chinese American film or or uh, Mexican you know you, you you know what is that two words white supremacy i think it's been clear that our stories are lucrative like even if they never had a box office um stat to support the idea when you just look at the demographics across the world there's more people of color um so that even if a domestic audience didn't pull it, the internet, the, the international audience could just based off sheer numbers. When you're talking about an Indian American, there's over a billion people in India. Bollywood is like one of the biggest film industries in the world. So that goes without saying. Same for black cinema. Like Nollywood is one of the largest, one of the top five in the world. So it's not about numbers. I think it's down to sheer fear that if people of color or diverse perspectives really got a seat at the table that somehow they fear that maybe the table would no longer be theirs. When you think about what media does to shape perspectives and shape minds, you know, it's no, it's no, it's been no mistake that um, the white heteronormative male perspective has been what has been put forward as the standard and so if you have more and more diverse voices and faces at the table you know what has been always accepted as the standard becomes questionable at that point you know we might put forth the idea that all people are equal and we're not so different after all and that's really scary when you're trying to promote those two words i just said white supremacy and speaking of diverse perspectives you are a world traveler which countries have made a tremendous impact on you Oh, man. So every country I've been to has left some form of a mark on me. Um, On a side note and a kind of funny one, I judge every nation by its food. So (laughs) there's that. But, you know, on the big level, the culture and all of those things that we must talk about, I would say um, the country that had probably the biggest mark on me is Kenya. Um, I went there. uh, It's probably been at least like six or seven years now, but I saw one of the beautiful, most beautiful sights I have ever seen. Um, it was actually a broad view of the Great Rift Valley. It looked like God had literally just put his foot down on the earth and left his mark um, in that space. And I realized there, as I do when I look out at the um, horizon, at the ocean, that you know, no matter what our problems are, no matter what we find to be so urgently important in the world, there's something out there that's way bigger than you and you'd better have that in perspective in order to just be balanced and not take yourself too seriously, you know, in this thing called life. Um, and then just the people there too, like they were amazing. Um, and they were very metropolitan. Like you, you know, a lot of times we have a lot of negative assumptions about Africa being this war ridden, impoverished place, but there were people that 
we're in Nairobi, which is like one of the biggest cities in Africa. And I, I looked at them and I was like, thought, hey, they're more urban than me. I grew up in a small town with like 20,000 people. And here they are in a city of probably a couple million. And you know, if you put us side by side, that's the city person. I'm the country girl. And so just just the broad experience that I had there in that particular country, it really stuck with me. And it's still one of my favorites to this day. Mm-hmm. Talk about being spiritually grounded, especially in this industry. Oh, man, that's huge. So um, being spiritually grounded, I think, is no matter what your belief system is, is very important because there's so many things, material things and just things that can get in the way when it comes to this industry. Um, You know, a lot of times people come for fame and fortune um, to this industry. And sometimes the price that you have to pay or the things that you have to sacrifice or give up in pursuit of that dream um, can leave you with something that might have you tossing and turning at night. You know, there's no there's no um, accident behind like why there's such a high rate of substance abuse or suicide or just all of these self-harming mechanisms that you find within our industry. And so for me, staying spiritually grounded, number one, made me still be me. I didn't want to lose myself at the end of the day because there's no movie or television show or content that's worth that to me. Um, But also, I think it also informs the the filmmaker that I am. Like, you know, even if it's not faith-based content, it's like I, I have a guiding compass that takes me through my storytelling, takes me through how even I interact with people when I'm on set. Um, there's To me, from the PA to the executive producer, I treat everybody the same and I treat everybody with kindness. Um, and not even for the reason of, oh, the PA might one day be a big wig, but just period, we're people. Um, and so that's something that I think my spiritual grounding, you know, instills in how I interact with people, how I address my stories and, you know, just try to operate in integrity, um, you know, no matter what space or what role I'm in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to ask you a series of favorites and okay. you're going to tell me your favorite and then why. So, number one, favorite male actor. Oh, man. This one's hard. I have two. Um, But for the sake of answering your question really quickly, I'm going to say Giancarlo Esposito. Mm -hmm. He is slept on. Like, everybody knows he's talented, but I don't think people always really consider how talented he is. Like, this man... He's just he's a stellar actor. And if I had to if I could slip in a second one, I would say Jeffrey Wright. But Giancarlo Esposito, that's my guy. Jeffrey Wright. That's interesting. Yep. Okay. Okay. Favorite female actor. Oh, man. Uh, Favorite female actress, I would say Meryl Streep. So I love I love Meryl Streep. She's just amazing. But the thing that I really love about her is that she she, the icon, disappears into any role she plays. Like, I don't see Meryl anymore when she's on screen. Like, she turns in, she she fully embodies whoever she plays. Mm-hmm. Favorite movie? Uh, depending on what day of the week you catch me on, I'll give you a different answer. Um, but for today, I would say my favorite film is City of God. Ah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, I I really love that film um, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, obviously the cinematography was just out of this world. Magnifique. Um, yes, the storyline was amazing. I also, even though I've never been to Brazil, I have an affinity for um, Brazilian culture and Brazilian history. Um, and so I think just, there's just that aspirational side of me that just wants to be able to be on those shores one day in person. And so in the meantime, I just like, you know, look at all the eye candy in the cinematography and just, you know, count down to the day when I can actually be there. We, uh, we had to study that at, at Howard, didn't we? We did. Yeah. We did. For good reason. <laughs> For good reason. Favorite director, Laurie. These questions are getting hard, Crispin. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think all of, if I had to choose my favorite all around, I would say Ryan Coogler. Um, and I know he's like, he only has up to go in his career, um, even with the amazing handful of films that he's done so far. But what really resonates with me most in his work, and I hope one day that the world will get to see in my work, is um, this down-to-earth storytelling. Like, he gets down to, like, the grain of each of his characters and makes you feel them on a level like you know them as a friend. And and that's something that I think has been consistent across all of his works. Even back when we were in film school, he was he was finishing film school as I was starting. Um, but even in his work back then, it still has that same thread of just like uh, realness in it. And it's it's not a gritty realness. It's a realness based on like how how granular he gets with his characters in terms of making us know and care about who they are. Your favorite childhood TV show was... <laughs> my favorite childhood TV show. Ooh, this is hard. I would probably say a different world. Um, Dwayne and Whitley. You know, they were they were like <laughs> they were couples' goals, and then you know, just there's so many great memories um, that I remember from that show. And then even as a director and a woman in the industry, like once I got to understand behind the scenes what Debbie Allen was for that show. Um, you know, that just gave me something even as an adult to like really just attach to the childhood memories of that I had of that show too. Mm-hmm. Your favorite TV show now? Oof. My favorite TV show now. Ooh, I can't think of it right off the top of my head. Um, there's so much. I'm trying to think of what I most recently watched. I don't know, Crispin. <laughs> Man, I, I feel like I, as soon as we are done with this call, like it's going to come to me. Um, oh, what is my favorite show now? Got to be watching um, something on Netflix. I know, right? Okay, I, here's one that was recent. So, of the very recent shows that I watched, Ozark. That was one ah, that I really liked. Good one. Yeah, that, that whole family was a hot ham, and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's a question for you. Given who you are as a filmmaker, as a person, as a well-grounded person, would you rather one of your films to win five Oscars in one in one sitting of the Academy Awards, or would you rather for your film to influence changes in law or the Constitution? Which would you take? Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really, really profound question. Um... I mean, the the competitive filmmaker side of me would obviously say Oscars, but the filmmaker that I am, I would actually rather that my film inspired change, meaningful change in society. That's beyond any of the accolades or any of the hype of the industry. That's been the one thing that has drawn me to this industry and has kept me here. Um, and if I thought that anything that I made could make people, one, just think differently or um you know that it could inspire something meaningful that lasted well beyond the film i would i would take that route hands down mm-hmm. now laurie you've told us about the project that is currently that is currently out but can you give us a sneak peek as to a next the next big project here you're thinking about at least yeah definitely um so one of the scripts that i'm working on is a um is a story um, that's inspired by Asada Shakur um, dealing with a female revolutionary that's on the run from a government that has decided that she's an enemy of the state. Um, and so that that particular story is very special for me um, for a number of reasons. One, because I just love that era of um, America's history, um, specific to the Black Panthers, but also just given the climate that we're in now, that history keeps repeating itself. Um, I, I, I think that we need to see more stories like that for people to be able to make those connections across time. And plus, it's just cool to be able to see uh, a woman that, you know, is is handling business and is standing up for what she believes in, even if at cost of her own livelihood and safety, um, because we need, to, we need to take a stand in this country. So, Laurie, <laughs> when you're... 105 years old, rocking back and forth on your rocking chair 
uh, over, you know, on, on the veranda of your mansion in Malibu overlooking the Pacific Ocean. What would you like to say was that thing that you that you really worked hard for and you accomplished? What is Laurie Webster's ultimate goal? Um, my my ultimate goal um, as a filmmaker and just as a human being is to inspire people to be their best selves. Um, I, and I, and I don't say that in a cliche way. Um, you know, in the content that I create, I want it to be food for thought. I want it to be something that generates conversation, even if that conversation ends up being a heated debate, but I want it to be something that when people walk away from what they've seen of my work, that they're not the same that they were when they sat down, um, that it, that it makes them see things a little bit differently, or at least not take everything at face value. And so, um, even on a broader level, um, in terms of just some of the additional work that I want to do outside of cinema, like I want to be that person that paved a way or opened a door for someone else so that they don't have to go through some of the things that I went through, um, to, to get to where, you know, I eventually plan on being, I want to, you know, make it so that other young filmmakers that are black, that are brown, whatever race that they are, um, anybody that has ever been on the margins, that the door is open for them so that, you know, ultimately their stories can inspire others as well. What is some of the work that you like to do outside of filmmaking, if I may ask? Um, so one of the, actually one of the things that you and I had talked about, um, it's actually specific to um, Howard University or to, to a historically black university that has a film program. I think that our stories matter. Um, and I'm so glad to see that Hollywood is finally taken to that idea, but I sometimes fear that it might just be a trend. Um, but beyond the idea of a trend, I want to see more resources being invested into programs, um, that encourage people of color to tell their story and tell it boldly. Um, and one of the things that's really important about those kinds of programs is that we need safe spaces to be able to incubate those voices as they're kind of finding their leg legs and, you know, kind of building their way, um, before the mainstream industry kind of beats it back or wears it down or, or, you know, forces us into telling safe stories. Um, so that's one, that's one aspect. Philanthropy is something that's big for me too. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, with world missions, organizations traveling, and I'm not talking about the ones where, you know, they basically try to colonize. I'm talking about ones where, you know, they give resources to the local people to be able to do for themselves. And so I definitely want to be continue part of that type of work as well. Um, and just being a mentor, like even if it's just one-on-one mentorship, like I think that, you know, one of the things in our community that we can build on is community cultural wealth. Um, and that's something that is learned through like direct exchange, you know, like not hoarding all the secrets or expecting that somebody behind you figure it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. It's like sometimes it can be just as simple as like sitting people down, sharing the best practices and, you know, being the shoulders that someone else stands on. So like industry wise or whatever it can be that I can like hand back to the generation um, after me, like sign me up. Ah, so much, so much good stuff. Now, Laurie, this is a portion of the interview that I call The Planet is Yours. I strap on my spacesuit and jump out into the atmosphere, and I leave you on the planet alone to tell the audience whatever it is you want to tell them. Well, I would just say, in this life, we've got to live it to the fullest. We've got to live our lives with intention. There's nothing safe about being safe. Calculated risk is definitely the way to go um, because with with the risk comes reward. Um, but with risk also comes fear and sometimes comes the unfamiliar. And we can't allow ourselves to be boxed in by that. We just have to know that in preparing as much as we can and boldly facing the unknown that there's something good to come. And we can always rest our hat on that. Mm-hmm. Laurie Webster, how do we contact you? Uh, drop your socials or your website and also your film that's out. How do how can people see it? Um, so as far as the film, we're working on getting distribution for that. So I'll definitely be posting on my socials when all of that 
um, ink has dried and all of that is official. Um, but in terms of just checking me out online, my work, um, you can visit hiddengemstories.com. Hiddengemstories.com. And again, the name of the film? The name of the film is Reclaiming Our Collective Strength. Um, that's a docuseries that will be out this fall. Um, the other piece, I will post it to my socials when I can. I got an NDA, so I can't say what it is just yet. <laughs> all right, all right. Laurie Webster, I cannot thank you enough for joining me here on the planet. It was my absolute oh. pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Crispin. And I'm so happy for what you're doing with this podcast. It's just so inspiring seeing all of the different people that you've been interviewing. And I'm excited and honored to be one of those people. The honor was mine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is onplanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.